Chapter Ten of the Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter Ten. Birth of the Republican Party. Lincoln, one of its fathers, takes his stand with the abolitionists. The Bloomington Convention. Lincoln's great anti-slavery speech. A ratification meeting of three. The First National Republican Convention, Lincoln's name presented for the Vice-Presidency, Nomination of Fremont and Dayton, Lincoln in the Campaign of 1856, His Appearance and Influence on the Stump, Regarded as a Dangerous Man, His Views on the Politics of the Future, First Visit to Cincinnati, Meeting with Edwin M. Stanton, Stanton's First Impressions of Lincoln, regards him as a giraffe. A visit to Cincinnati. The year 1856 saw the dissolution of the old Whig party. It had become too narrow and restricted to answer the needs of the hour. A new platform was demanded, one that would admit the great principles and issues growing out of the slavery agitation. A convention of the Whig leaders throughout the country met at Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, on the 22nd of February of that year to consider the necessity of a new organization. A little later, Mr. Herndon, in the office of Lincoln, prepared a call for a convention at Bloomington, Illinois, summoning together all those who wished to see the government conducted on the principles of Washington and Jefferson. This call was signed by the most prominent abolitionists of Illinois, with the name of A. Lincoln at the head. The morning after its publication, Major Stewart entered Mr. Herndon's office in a state of extreme excitement and as the latter relates, demanded, "'Sir, did Mr. Lincoln sign that abolition call which is published this morning?' I answered, "'Mr. Lincoln did not sign that call.' "'Did Lincoln authorize you to sign it?' "'No, he never authorized me to sign it.' "'Then do you know that you have ruined Mr. Lincoln?' I did not know that I had ruined Mr. Lincoln, did not intend to do so, thought he was a made man by it that the time had come when conservatism was a crime and a blunder. You, then, take the responsibility of your acts, do you? I do, most emphatically. However, I instantly sat down and wrote to Mr. Lincoln, who was then in Pekin or Tremont, possibly at court. He received my letter, and instantly replied, either by letter or telegraph, most likely by letter, that he adopted in toto what I had done, and promised to meet the Radicals, Lovejoy and such like men among us. Mr. Herndon adds, Never did a man change as Lincoln did from that hour. No sooner had he planted himself right on the slavery question than his whole soul seemed burning. He blossomed right out. Then, too, other spiritual things grew more real to him. Mr. Herndon had been an abolitionist from birth. It was an inheritance with him. But Lincoln's conversion was a gradual process, stimulated and confirmed by the influence of his companion. From 1854 to 1860, says Mr. Herndon, I kept putting into Lincoln's hands the speeches and sermons of Theodore Parker, Wendell Phillips, and Henry Ward Beecher. I took the Anti-Slavery Standard for years before 1856, the Chicago Tribune, and the New York Tribune, kept them in my office, kept them purposely on my table and would read to Lincoln the good, sharp, solid things, well put. 
Lincoln was a natural anti-slavery man, as I think, and yet he needed watching, needed hope, faith, energy, and I think I warmed him. It is stated that when Herndon was very young, probably before Mr. Lincoln made his first protest in the legislature of the state in behalf of liberty, Lincoln once said to him, "'I cannot see what makes your conviction so decided as regards the future of slavery. What tells you the thing must be rooted out?' "'I feel it in my bones,' was Herndon's emphatic answer. "'This continent is not broad enough to endure the contest between freedom and slavery.' It was almost in these very words that Lincoln afterwards opened the great contest with Douglas. From this time forward he submitted all public questions to what he called the test of Bill Herndon's bone philosophy, and their arguments were close and protracted. Lincoln's attitude on slavery aroused formidable opposition among his friends, and even in his own family. Mrs. Lincoln was decidedly pro-slavery in her views. Once while riding with a friend she said, if my husband dies, his spirit will never find me residing outside the limits of a slave state. But opposition, whether from without or within, could never swerve him from a course to which conscience and reason clearly impelled him. Long before Mr. Herndon published the call for the Bloomington Convention, he had said to a deputation of men from Chicago, in answer to the inquiry whether Lincoln could be trusted for freedom, "'Can you trust yourselves?' If you can, you can trust Lincoln forever. The convention at Bloomington, May 29, 1856, one of its chief incidents was a speech by Lincoln. This speech was one of the great efforts of his life, and had a powerful influence on the convention. Never, says one of the delegates, was an audience more completely electrified by human eloquence. Again and again his hearers sprang to their feet, and by long-continued cheers expressed how deeply the speaker had aroused them. It was there, says Mr. Herndon in one of his lectures, that Lincoln was baptized and joined our church. He made a speech to us. I have heard or read all of Mr. Lincoln's great speeches, and I give it as my opinion that the Bloomington speech was the grand effort of his life. Heretofore, and up to this moment, he had simply argued the slavery question on grounds of policy, on what are called the statesmen's grounds, never reaching the question of the radical and eternal right. Now he was newly baptized, and freshly born. He had the fervor of a new convert. The smothered flame broke out. Enthusiasm unusual to him blazed up. His eyes were aglow with inspiration. He felt a new and more vital justice. His heart was alive to the right. His sympathies burst forth and he stood before the throne of the eternal right, in presence of his God, and then and there unburdened his penitential and fired soul. This speech was fresh, new, genuine, odd, original, filled with fervor not unmixed with a divine enthusiasm, his head breathing out through his tender heart its truths, its sense of right, and its feeling of the good and for the good. This speech was full of fire and energy and force. It was logic. It was pathos, it was enthusiasm, it was justice, equity, truth, right, and good, set ablaze by the divine fires of a soul maddened by wrong. It was hard, heavy, knotty, gnarly, edged, and heated. I attempted for about fifteen minutes, as was usual with me then, to take notes. But at the end of that time I threw pen and paper to the dogs, and lived only in the inspiration of the hour. 
If Mr. Lincoln was six feet four inches high, usually, at Bloomington he was seven feet, and inspired at that. From that day to the day of his death he stood firm on the right. He felt his great cross, and his great idea, nursed it, kept it, taught it to others, and in his fidelity bore witness to it with his death, and finally sealed it with his precious blood. The Committee on Resolutions at the Convention found themselves, after hours of discussion, unable to agree, and at last they sent for Lincoln. He suggested that all could unite on the principles of the Declaration of Independence and hostility to the extension of slavery. "'Let us,' said he, "'in building our new party, make our cornerstone the Declaration of Independence. Let us build on this rock, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against us.'" The problem was mastered, and the Convention adopted the following. Resolved that we hold, in accordance with the opinions and practices of all the great statesmen of all parties for the first sixty years of the administration of the government, that under the Constitution Congress possesses full power to prohibit slavery in the territories, and that while we will maintain all constitutional rights of the South, we also hold that justice, humanity, the principles of freedom, as expressed in our Declaration of Independence and our National Constitution, and the purity and perpetuity of our government require that that power should be exerted to prevent the extension of slavery into territories heretofore free. The Bloomington Convention concluded its work by choosing delegates to the National Republican Convention to be held at Philadelphia the following month, for the nomination of candidates for the Presidency and Vice-Presidency of the United States. And thus was organized the Republican Party in Illinois which revolutionized the politics of the state, and elected Lincoln to the presidency. The people of Bloomington seemed to have had but little sympathy with this convention. A few days later Herndon and Lincoln tried to hold a ratification meeting. But only three persons were present—Lincoln, Herndon, and John Payne. When Lincoln came into the courtroom, where the meeting was to be held, says Herndon, there was an expression of sadness and amusement on his face. He walked to the stand mounted it in a kind of mockery, mirth and sadness all combined, and said, "'Gentlemen, this meeting is larger than I thought it would be. I knew that Herndon and myself would come, but I did not know that anyone else would be here. And yet another has come—you, John Payne. These are sad times, and seem out of joint. All seems dead. But the age is not yet dead. It liveth as sure as our Maker liveth. Under all this seeming want of life in motion, the world does move nevertheless. Be hopeful. And now let us adjourn and appeal to the people." The National Convention of the Republican Party met at Philadelphia in June 1856, and adopted a Declaration of Principles substantially based upon those of the Bloomington Convention. John C. Fremont was nominated as candidate for President. Among the names presented for vice-president was that of Abraham Lincoln, who received 110 votes. William L. Dayton received 259 votes, and was unanimously declared the nominee. Fremont and Dayton thus became the standard-bearers of the new national party. When the news reached Lincoln, in Illinois, that he had received 110 votes as nominee for the vice-presidency, he could not at first believe that he was the man voted for, and said, No, it could not be. It must have been the great Lincoln of Massachusetts. He was then in one of his melancholy moods, full of depression and despondency. 
In the stirring presidential campaign of 1856, Lincoln was particularly active and rendered most efficient service to the Republican Party. He spoke constantly, discussing the great question of slavery in the territories, in a manner at once original and masterly. A graphic picture of one of these campaign gatherings is furnished by Hon. William Bross, afterwards Lieutenant Governor of Illinois. I first met Mr. Lincoln to know him, says Governor Bross, at Vandalia, the old capital of the state, in October 1856. There was to be a political meeting in front of the old State House, in the center of the square, at two o'clock. Soon after that hour, the sonorous voice of Dr. Curdy rang through the town. Oh, yes! Oh, yes! All ye who want to hear public speaking, draw near! The crowd at once began to gather from all sides of the square. The doctor then introduced the first speaker, and he proceeded to make the best presentation he could of the principles of the newly formed Republican Party, and the reasons why Fremont, the gallant pathfinder of the West, should be elected president. About the time the first speaker closed his remarks, Hon. Ebenezer Peck and Abraham Lincoln arrived and took the stand, and both made able and effective speeches. After that Lincoln and I frequently met during the canvass, and often afterwards I spoke with him from the same platform. The probable result of an election was often canvassed, and a noticeable fact was that in most cases he would mark the probable result below rather than above the actual majority. Some lively reminiscences of Lincoln's appearance and efforts in this campaign are given by Mr. Noah Brooks, the well-known journalist and author who at that time lived in northern Illinois and attended many of the great Republican mass meetings. At one of these great assemblies in Ogle County, says Mr. Brooks, to which the country people came on horseback, in farm wagons, or afoot, from far and near, there were several speakers of local celebrity. Dr. Egan of Chicago, famous for his racy stories, was one, and Joe Knox of Bureau County, a stump speaker of renown, was another attraction. Several other orators were on the bills for this long-advertised Fremont and Dayton rally, among them being a Springfield lawyer who had won some reputation as a close reasoner and a capital speaker on the stump. This was Abraham Lincoln, popularly known as Honest Abe Lincoln. In those days he was not so famous in our part of the state as the two speakers whom I have named. Possibly he was not so popular among the masses of the people. But his ready wit, his unfailing good humor, and the candor which gave him his character for honesty won for him the admiration and respect of all who heard him. I remember once meeting a choleric old Democrat striding away from an open-air meeting where Lincoln was speaking, striking the earth with his cane as he stumped along, and exclaiming, "'He's a dangerous man, sir, a damned dangerous man. He makes you believe what he says in spite of yourself.' It was Lincoln's manner. He admitted away his whole case, apparently, and yet as his political opponents complained, he usually carried conviction with him. As he reasoned with his audience, he bent his long form over the railing of the platform, stooping lower and lower as he pursued his argument, until having reached his point he clinched it, usually with a question, and then suddenly sprang upright, reminding one of the springing open of a jackknife blade. At the Ogle County meeting to which I refer, Lincoln led off, the raciest speakers being reserved for the latter part of the political entertainment. I am bound to say that Lincoln did not awaken the boisterous applause which some of those who followed him did, 
but his speech made a more lasting impression. It was talked about for weeks afterward in the neighborhood, and it probably changed many votes, for that was the time when free-soil votes were being made in northern Illinois. Mr. Brooks had made Lincoln's acquaintance early in the day referred to, and after Lincoln had spoken, and while some of the other orators were entertaining the audience, the two drew a little off from the crowd, and fell into a discussion over the political situation and prospects. "'We crawled under the pendulous branches of a tree,' says Mr. Brooks, and Lincoln, lying flat on the ground with his chin in his hands, talked on rather gloomily as to the present but absolutely confident as to the future. I was dismayed to find that he did not believe it possible that Fremont could be elected. As if half pitying my youthful ignorance, but admiring my enthusiasm, he said, "'Don't be discouraged if we don't carry the day this year. We can't do it, that's certain. We can't carry Pennsylvania. Those old Whigs down there are too strong for us. But we shall sooner or later elect our president. I feel confident of that. Do you think we shall elect a free-soil president in 1860?' I asked. Well, I don't know. Everything depends on the course of the democracy. There's a big anti-slavery element in the Democratic Party, and if we could get hold of that, we might possibly elect our man in 1860. But it's doubtful, very doubtful. Perhaps we shall be able to fetch it by 1864. Perhaps not. As I said before, the Free Soil Party is bound to win in the long run. It may not be in my day, but it will be in yours, I do really believe. The defeat of Fremont soon verified Lincoln's prediction on that score. A peculiarly interesting episode of Lincoln's life belongs to this period, though unrelated to political events. This was the meeting, in a professional way, with Edwin M. Stanton, at that time a prominent lawyer of Pittsburgh, afterwards the great war secretary of President Lincoln's cabinet. The circumstances were briefly these. Among Lincoln's law cases, one was connected with the patent of the McCormick Reaper, and in the summer of 1857 he visited Cincinnati to argue the case before Judge McLean of the United States Circuit Court. It was a case of great importance, involving the foundation patent of the machine which was destined to revolutionize the harvesting of grain. Reverdy Johnson was on one side of the case, and E. M. Stanton and George Harding on the other. It became necessary, in addition, to have a lawyer who was a resident of Illinois. An inquiry was made of Hon. E. B. Washburn, then in Congress, as to whether he knew a suitable man. The latter replied that there was a man named Lincoln at Springfield, who had considerable reputation in the state. Lincoln was retained in the case, and came on to Cincinnati with a brief. Stanton and Harding saw in their associate counsel a tall, dark, uncouth man, who did not strike them as of any account, and indeed they gave him hardly any chance. An interesting account of this visit and of various incidents connected with it has been prepared by the Honorable W. M. Dixon of Cincinnati. Mr. Lincoln came to the city, says Mr. Dixon, a few days before the argument took place, and remained during his stay at the house of a friend. The case was one of large importance pecuniarily, and in the law questions involved. Reverdy Johnson presented the plaintiff. Mr. Lincoln had prepared himself with the greatest care. His ambition was to speak in the case, and to measure swords with the renowned lawyer from Baltimore. It was understood between his client and himself, before his coming, that Mr. Harding of Philadelphia was to be associated with him in the case, and was to make the mechanical argument. 
Mr. Lincoln was a little surprised and annoyed, after reaching Cincinnati, to learn that his client had also associated with him Mr. Edwin M. Stanton, of Pittsburgh, and a lawyer of our own bar. The reason assigned being that the importance of the case required a man of the experience and power of Mr. Stanton to meet Mr. Johnson. The reasons given did not remove the slight conveyed in the employment, without consultation with Lincoln, of this additional counsel. He keenly felt it, but acquiesced. The trial of the case came on. The counsel for defense met each morning for consultation. On one of these occasions one of the counsel moved that only two of them should speak in the case. This motion was also acquiesced in. It had always been understood that Mr. Harding was to speak to explain the mechanism of the reapers, so this motion excluded either Mr. Lincoln or Mr. Stanton. By the custom of the bar, as between counsel of equal standing and in the absence of any action of the client, the original counsel speaks. By this rule Mr. Lincoln had precedence. Mr. Stanton suggested to Mr. Lincoln to make the speech. Mr. Lincoln answered, No, you speak. Mr. Stanton replied, I will, and taking up his hat, said he would go and make preparation. Mr. Lincoln acquiesced in this, but was deeply grieved and mortified. He took but little more interest in the case, though remaining until the conclusion of the trial. He seemed to be greatly depressed, and gave evidence of that tendency to melancholy which so marked his character. His parting on leaving the city cannot be forgotten. Cordially shaking the hand of his hostess, he said, "'You have made my stay here most agreeable, and I am a thousand times obliged to you. But as for repeating my visit, I must say to you, I never expect to be in Cincinnati again.' I have nothing against the city, but things have so happened here as to make it undesirable for me ever to return." Thus untowardly met, for the first time, Lincoln and Stanton. Little did either then suspect that they were to meet again on a larger theatre, to become the chief actors in a great historical epoch. If Lincoln was surprised and annoyed at the treatment he received from Stanton, the latter was no less surprised and a good deal more disgusted on seeing Lincoln and learning of his connection with the case. He made no secret of his contempt for the long, lank creature from Illinois, as he afterwards described him, wearing a dirty linen duster for a coat, on the back of which the perspiration had splotched wide stains that resembled a dirty map of the continent. He blurted out his wrath and indignation to his associate counsel, declaring that if that giraffe was permitted to appear in the case, he would throw up his brief and leave it. Lincoln keenly felt the affront, but his great nature forgave it so entirely that, recognizing the singular abilities of Stanton beneath his brusque exterior, he afterwards, for the public good, appointed him to a seat in his cabinet. Lincoln, says Mr. Dixon, remained in Cincinnati about a week, moving freely about. Yet not twenty men in the city knew him personally, or knew he was there. Not a hundred would have known who he was had his name been given to them. He came with the fond hope of making fame in a forensic contest with Riverty Johnson. He was pushed aside, humiliated and mortified. He attached to the innocent city the displeasure that filled his bosom, and shook its dust from his feet. In his autobiography, Moncure D. Conway records a glimpse of Lincoln during his Cincinnati visit that seems worth transcribing. One warm evening, in 1859, passing through the market-place in Cincinnati, I found there a crowd listening to a political speech in the open air. 
The speaker stood on the balcony of a small brick house, some lamps assisting the moonlight. Something about the speaker, and some words that reached me, led me to press nearer. I asked the speaker's name, and learned that it was Abraham Lincoln. Browning's description of the German professor, three parts sublime to one grotesque, was applicable to this man. The face had a battered and bronzed look, without being hard. His nose was prominent, and buttressed a strong and high forehead. His eyes were high-vaulted, and had an expression of sadness. His mouth and chin were too close together, the cheeks hollow. On the whole, Lincoln's appearance was not attractive until one heard his voice, which possessed variety of expression, earnestness, and shrewdness in every tone. The charm of his manner was that he had no manner. He was simple, direct, humorous. He pleasantly repeated a mannerism of his opponent. This is what Douglas calls his great principle. But the next words I remember were these. Slavery is wrong. End of chapter 10 Recording by Bill Borst